Welcome to our discussion segment on The Rise and the Fall of Napoleon Bonaparte. I'm Jill Parker. Je suis Jean Striter. Let's get started. You show off. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Don't apologize. <laughs> I understand this is your time period, but it is really, I was like, oh, all right, here, here we are. Here we are. Well, this was obviously a very long episode. Yes. Uh, and uh, as John stated in the podcast, this is our Christmas present to you. That's right. And it's, it's also a recognition that it's hard to break this guy's life up into two sections. But yes, it's mostly a Christmas present to yeah. you, our wonderful fans. Yeah, absolutely. So, John, where to get started? Hmm. I mean, th this was a more dense episode, uh, obviously longer, as we just said. It's probably the, the most dense since the uh, Second World War back in season one. I, don't, yeah. I can't think of anything that's been, yeah. I mean, you, books have been written on like almost every sentence in this podcast. Yeah. So I'm going to do my very best okay. to, uh, to try and have a good conversation yeah, about absolutely. this. And uh, we're going to try and keep it to under an hour. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I guess my first question was, thinking about Napoleon, you cited in the podcast that he, he went to Rome in terms of his mind, like the Roman emperors, ancient Rome, yep. and thinking about how to govern. Why and how far did he apply that philosophy, I'll call it? And why was that his model? It was his model because Rome endured for so long, and he was setting up an empire that would outlast him in his own mind. He went to it, I think... For a couple of reasons, that being the primary one, but also he knew it. He, he had been classically educated, so he understood the history of Greece and Rome. I think the imagery of himself as a new Caesar certainly appealed to someone whose ego was like planet-sized. If you look at the famous portrait, the original of which is at the Louvre, of the consecration of the Emperor Napoleon and the crowning of Empress Josephine, he's depicted in there exactly like Julius Caesar. He's wearing a toga. He's got the wreaths. He, if you take a look at that painting and then a bust of either Julius Caesar or Caesar, especially Caesar Augustus, they look almost identical. So this classical imagery is something that he very much wanted to, uh, wanted to resurrect in France as a return to the past, given that so much of the French mindset had said, no, we're going to ignore the past. He's saying, no, the past is important and we're going to resurrect it by creating almost a new Roman Empire in France. So he linked that back to the Jacobin kind of sense of I don't of know if it was intentional, but I would imagine that it was. He was a man steeped in history. He did not like what the Jacobins were doing. And so just for his own, even for his own personal motivations, I'm sure he wanted to revive a sense of history in France. Okay. And he also, in terms of, you asked about like how far did he take it, the Napoleonic Code is pretty much a carbon copy of the Code of Justinian, the Corpus Juris Civilis, the surviving body that we have of Roman laws, adapted for modern uh, for sure. modern usage, basically. But that is his greatest legacy, more than anything else, is the Napoleonic Code, because it is, as it said in the podcast, it's used all across Europe it, and it, in the state of Louisiana here in America. Really? Yep. There's the Constitution of the United States, and then there is the Napoleonic Code. Yeah, I'm going to guess that's from the French immigrants. Yeah. Okay. And the, fact that, and the fact that Louisiana, yes, was France yeah. or was French. Interesting. So when, when he was citing Rome in his mind and applying what he knew about Rome to France, did he stop thinking about how Rome ended or was that not part of his, his uh, well, Rome mindset? En well, Rome ended because of cultural decay and military defeats, but it was mostly the cultural decay that led to the collapse of the Roman Empire. Yeah. And for all of Napoleon's flaws, he did not let French culture decay. So yeah. that, I mean, it was, I'm sure it was on his mind, but there was not a Roman version of the invasion of Russia that, you know, which is what destroyed Napoleon's empire. Yeah. And also Charles XII before him and Adolf Hitler after him. First lesson in the book of war, 
do not invade Russia. Yes. Second lesson, do not invade Russia. <laughs> third lesson, do not invade Russia. I was, was going to guess, like, let me guess what the third one is. I have a good idea. General yeah. Sir Bernard Law Montgomery. We will, we will get from to him. that later, yes, I promise. So in thinking about all of the reforms that he implemented, um, especially early on, many of them were very popular and effective. Yep. As you went through the podcast and, and, and understanding this time period in history, it seemed like he was building upon them for a while and then kind of stopped. Mm-hmm. Why did he do that? And just an honest question, was he the problem or were French expectations too high? Well, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> yeah. both of those. Yeah. So most of his reforms and most of his programs, you're right, were very popular. He became unpopular really for two reasons. One was because of him and one was because of the wars. The second one's easiest to explain. If you're going to launch war after war after war after war, eventually you start to run out of volunteer soldiers. And so you have to conscript soldiers into the military. It was the conscription orders levied in France and in the conquered territories that really turned a lot of the people against them. As I said a couple times, you know, mothers do not want to see their sons dragged from their homes and sent off to fight. The other one is his policies against the church. And that was where he came into play. Sometime around 1810, 1811, I don't know, and there's a lot of discussion. Andrew Roberts, who I think is the best modern historian on Napoleon, he, and he's not really sure about this, but something changed in Napoleon's attitude towards his relationship with the rest of the world. He started to think, okay, my presence on the battlefield and my presence anywhere in the world, my existence is more important than anything else. Napoleon started his military career and started his political career as a servant of the people. But that changed, and you see it in how he treated the church. In 1803, I believe it was, he restores the Catholic Church's position, but not its authority, in France. He gives the Pope, or he gives priests permission to perform Mass and to celebrate the Eucharist and all of that, restoring that ancient connection to to the past. But then, a few years later, when he invades Rome, the city of Rome, he ends up taking the Pope prisoner. I think, Andrew Roberts thinks, most historians of this period think he didn't like the idea that there was a spiritual figure in Europe who was more important in the hearts and minds of the people than he was. Wow. It could have been that. It could have also been a political move to kind of keep the Catholic areas of Europe, like Austria and Northern Italy, in line, don't rebel against me, or something might happen to the Pope. But regardless, the, the motivations for his conquest starts to change, and he starts to become more and more autocratic, more and more dictatorial. So I, in terms of the French expectations, or sorry, the expectations yeah. of the French people, were, were they expecting, because understanding what they had just gone through and who they knew Napoleon to be, mm-hmm. were they expecting more than what he could provide? Or more no, than what he could do. No, the French people did not expect, they didn't, and, and I don't think they really wanted a continental empire. They wanted order and they wanted security. During the, the wars of the revolution, before Napoleon, France was on the defensive for most of it because Britain and the other more conservative powers declared war on revolutionary France after the execution of Louis XVI. Initially, it's about securing our borders enacting a measure of revenge, especially against the various German states, because there's always been a great deal of tension between France and Germany. And at some point, again, it was probably around 1809, 1810, the French people are like, okay, well, we we have that. We don't need to set up an empire, or I'm sorry, we don't need to set up a client state in Poland. Poland is a thousand miles away from Paris. We don't care about the Poles. 
why is the emperor doing this? Now, they, initially, they trust him. They, okay, it's, it's about French security. But as he launches more and more controversial and more and more costly military campaigns, they start to realize, okay, maybe he does not have our best interest at heart. Maybe he is only interested in his own glory. So the expectations of the French people change. Initially, it's order, security, a measure of revenge. And it becomes, wait a minute, this, this guy might not be everything that we thought he was. Or he might be changing. Maybe he was exactly who we thought he was when we voted him in as first consul, but maybe something has happened to him and he is now becoming more of an autocrat. Oh, interesting. And it goes back to power corrupts. Yeah. And he had absolute power, which yep. corrupts absolutely. Where did the money come from for all these wars? And, and why, after the reign of terror and the directory, were the French people in line with the expansion that he promoted? The money came from from taxes, from appropriations. And, and well, initially, there was some borrowing going on. Uh, America actually funded a good portion of it when we bought Louisiana from Napoleon. We gave him, I think it was $15 million, which uh, at that steel. time was a yeah. huge amount of yeah. money. Um, I mean, if we sold it back, I think one comedian I heard said, if we sold it back, we could double our money. Well, right? yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Sell the middle third of the country. Yeah. All the red states. No, we can't do that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And as far as them being, being on board with it, because France, like almost any other country in the world, certainly at that time, and you could argue today, they, they want the country to be great and powerful and, and feared across the world. So when the emperor is invading and conquering one country after another, when he's killing people and breaking things across half the continent, they're on board with it. Obviously, they mourn the losses of soldiers, but they are willing to accept that as a way to kind of rebalance the scales because France had descended so far into chaos and tyranny and all of that. Now it's time for France to reemerge and to relive the glory days of Louis XIV and of Charlemagne and things like that. In terms of the money, the reason why I was asking about that, because when I think about the military campaigns, how did they finance the supply chains? I know that's nerdy, but when I'm thinking about all of these armies on different fronts, the Spanish ulcer, the, the amount of money and time and resources it would take not just to feed the troops, but to get food and supplies back and forth, I can't even fathom that. Actually, a lot of Napoleon's campaigns, the soldiers lived off the land. They took whatever they needed from the conquered territories. So the, Napoleon was a master strategist, but he was also a master logician. He's able to use logistics yeah. to be able to increase the speed and the striking power of his army. I mean, his military reforms, which we don't have to get into because I don't have a board and I can't show you all the visual <laughs> stuff here, but his, his military reforms revolutionized warfare in a way not seen again until trench warfare in World War I. But his soldiers, it didn't cost a whole lot of, I mean, relatively speaking, a whole lot of money to send his various armies out on campaign because they lived off the land. They foraged for food in local towns, cities, things like that. And uh, we'll talk about this more later, but that's one of the reasons why when he invaded Russia, mm -hmm. he encountered some serious problems. Yeah. Yep. Okay. The question I'm about to ask has a, has a caveat. I understand as much as can be understood what kind of man he was. Understanding that, why would you expand and conquer when you can't govern what you already have? Because yes, he did implement reforms and he did make things better. But France had just come out of, to call it a turbulent time period, you said it in the last podcast, a collective insanity. Yeah. It seemed like there was still a lot of open wounds within French culture as a result of the time period that they had just gone through. And so why would Napoleon say, look at what happened? I see the damage that was done here. Let's let's put some things in place that'll, that'll hopefully fix that. Mm -hmm. 
but also let's expand out and create new problems for ourselves and new challenges. Or did he think everything's fine now? I fixed it. Well, for a while, everything was. Okay. He was able to give France a measure of stability early in his reign. So in terms of you know his motivations, I don't think he saw it as not being able to govern what he had. I mean, he's installing vassals. I, every one of his family members, his brothers all sure, became sure. kings and princes. His sisters all became queens. But it's to give the nation a purpose. Well, and- let's let's have a unifying national goal of beating the British, beating the Austrians, beating the Prussians. And to clarify, I don't mean Napoleon not being able to govern what what he had. I'm seeing like in terms of the nation of France and seeing where it came from, right? And saying, okay, this is what we've gone through. It just was well, but was, they have a strong leader now. The difference is they have a strong leader who most of the people support, at least in the beginning. Yeah. As public support wanes, that's when his problems start to arise. And that brings me into my next question. Uh, Good did, segue. I, did I, an, did yeah, I answer yeah, that yeah. question? Okay. Because right. I think I think going from the last podcast to this one, it's like, oh my gosh, look at all these problems. Yeah. And yes, you know, as you said, he did implement a lot of reforms that worked extremely well. Mm-hmm. But the rate at which he started to expand versus the rate of I'll, I'll call it healing, I don't know. Yeah. Allowing his reforms to actually be implemented and take some time to work and flush out True. was fast. Oh yeah, it was so fast, and so instantly I, I you know, hearing the podcast and 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 again hearing about his life, it's it's one of those things that are like wow, and yeah. that that brings me I, to my next oh, thing. But no, and, and I want to be clear that there was still opposition. I mean, Fouché was out there looking for assassins and, and dissidents and rebels. Sure. The the British are are smuggling agents and emigres back in. There were numerous attempts on his life. The, the closest that came to succeeding was a bomb was basically set up on the roadside and almost blew up his carriage. It actually blew up his wife's carriage. She was okay. It's called the Machine Infernal. It's an interesting story. Again, we could do an hour on that. Yeah, but easily. So, so he's not a universally loved figure, but his popularity was way, way, way up there yeah. for the first half of his reign, basically. So, Sorry, to inter- didn't mean to interrupt there. No, 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 no it's fine. I was just was understanding how fast he started to advance. Mm-hmm. Was he always a general first and an emperor second? Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yes. Because I, I understand, like, after Elba, he may have had a mind change where he was just like, I don't want to invade anyone. And you kind of touched on that in the yeah. podcast. But at this point in his life, it seemed like he wouldn't have stayed still very long. Oh, I don't think so. No. Okay. okay. Although, although, I will say... War was declared on him more often than he declared war. Interesting. He did not start a majority of the Napoleonic Wars. Was his intent to be a general first part of his downfall, his eventual downfall? Again, you, it really gets into the psychology of the emperor at that stage in 1813, 14, 15. I, honestly, I have to say I don't know because – was he still being a general or was he at this point becoming an autocrat, a, what am I trying to say? A megalomaniac who thought that, yes, I've done all of this other stuff. I can also take down Russia, a country that is unconquerable. Again, first rule in the book of war. I'm going to say it again. <laughs> Don't invade Russia. Right. If, and there's still a great deal of controversy and debate among historical circles, if he had become a megalomaniac, someone who is convinced of his own genius and his own supremacy, regardless of the facts, that was his downfall. If not, if he was still a general, he was simply outfought. He made mistakes, yeah, big mistakes that cost him dearly, but he was simply overwhelmed by numbers and by a series of reversals that 
he couldn't have anticipated or that he could have and should have, but he didn't. And that was a mistake. So depending on the biography and depending on the section of his diaries that you read, the section that I talked about last week that I read, I had an English translation with me, so I was reading it. And his diaries are very much very logical, very, very militaristic. It's not like reading Mein Kampf or reading the Communist Manifesto or reading these people who are so convinced of their own greatness that external events don't matter. He is talking sure. about on this day, we suffered this many casualties. On this day, I had a meeting with these marshals and they told me about this. On this day, I was talking to Fouché or I was talking to Talleyrand. It, it was very, it was very straightforward, very logical. So at least, and that was in 1809. So at least at that stage, his diaries, which were personal, he didn't expect them to be, to be published, were still the mindset of a general. Okay. What about Napoleon's strategies set him apart from other generals in his era? couple things. One, his use of artillery. He made it the central feature of his tactics. On the battlefield, his artillery is the most important. He drilled and trained his artillery soldiers to be able to set up, fire, tear down, move, set up, fire with speed that no one could, uh, no one else could match until very late in the Napoleonic Wars. Second was the way he positioned his troops. If you imagined a diamond formation, again, I don't have a board, so I'm going to do my best without, you know, to, to explain in words. He would have four units set up in a diamond formation so that he could engage the enemy with the top one, with the forward corps or division or whatever it is. Uh, send the, the two flanking corps out to the side to extend the enemy's lines. And then at the bottom of the diamond, he's got one more unit to swing around one side or the other and attack them from the rear. No one had done that before. At this stage, armies are advancing independently, corps are advancing independently, and you just stretch your lines out as far as you can and you try to overwhelm the enemy with superior firepower. Napoleon is, is using strategy in a completely different way. And then thirdly, was his use of logistics. His soldiers are able to move faster because they're living off the land, because they're not having to carry days and weeks and months of provisions, or they're hampered by a long supply train. I think it was uh, Marshal Davout's corps, who was probably, he was probably Napoleon's best marshal. He moved during the Jena campaign, something like 150 miles in five days with, wow. a, with a corps of like 50,000 soldiers. Wow. That's unheard of. It was one of the fastest military moves before the invention of the internal combustion engine that anyone had ever seen. So his army is able to move very, very quickly because of the reforms that he implemented. Now, part of his downfall was Napoleon did not write out military manuals. He did not teach his soldiers how to think for themselves. He didn't train them in his principles and then say, okay, now you go out and you create more innovations, and you create new strategies and new tactics and new ways of moving troops on the battlefield. He trained them, you follow my orders no matter what. So when he starts his descent into madness or into megalomania, or when he's getting older and, and, and is not and as sharp issues. anymore, yeah. Yeah, and he's got some, some health issues, his generals aren't able to adapt as quickly as they should. And you have to remember one other thing, another factor in Napoleon's downfall, his enemies are learning too. They're watching how he's moving his troops and they're going, that's a good idea. Waterloo is the culmination of Napoleon's strategies being used against him is what ultimately leads to his defeat. Yeah. So understanding that, did he use a baseline strategy? Like yes. his go-to? His okay. go-to strategy was secure the central position. You secure the central position and you pick the best ground. 
So whenever he approached a battle, it was, okay, find the best ground. I take that ground and I force the enemy to attack me rather than me going out and seeking the enemy. Okay. How would you contrast the Napoleon of Austerlitz to the Napoleon of Berardino? That's a good question. Napoleon at Austerlitz, obviously younger, seven years younger, more grounded, I think, in reality. He had a better understanding of, how do I put this? He had a better understanding of the day-to-day running of an army at that stage. Whereas seven years later in Russia, he had elevated himself to the point where he doesn't really concern himself with the day-to-day movements and day-to-day running of the army. For example, after Austerlitz, some members of the Imperial Guard, his best soldiers, the veterans that he had served with in Italy, in Egypt, uh, they were his friends. He, uh, he allowed them to address him by his name instead of by his title. He would go out and he would talk to them. And one of them, I believe this was after Austerlitz, one of them like poked fun at him a little bit. And it wasn't about his height because he wasn't actually that short. That's a, that's a British myth. Oh, I remember what it was. His hat was on like kind of cockeyed. And a, a soldier made a crack at him and he laughed and like tossed him a gold coin or something like that. And was like, oh, that was a funny joke. Here's 5,000 francs or something like that. Whereas if you read his diaries in 1812, he hates his troops. He hates the fact that he has to be around them. He cannot stand the filth and the complaining and the disease that's everywhere. He doesn't like to see the blood and the death and the gore. So he is much more... And again, it's either age or uh, an infirmity or it's megalomania. He is much more elevated in terms of how he sees his soldiers at that stage at Borodino and during the Russian campaign than at Austerlitz when he's just kind of starting out on his great military campaigns. Wow. So speaking of Russia. Yes. You've mentioned a couple of times it's not a good idea to invade Russia. First rule in the Book of War. What is it, everyone? Do not invade Russia. Very good, Joe. So I, I think it's it's a pretty well-known fact that the winters there are bad. Yes. And, uh, a little chilly. They, they've stopped several armies over the centuries. So in thinking about that, you laid it out very well, like what happens when he's advancing. Mm-hmm. And he gets to Moscow. So he's in Moscow. He's He just had this massive battle where he lost a lot of his troops. It's the bloodiest, I think you said the podcast, the bloodiest battle in the history of war until uh, World War One. Yep. He's taken the capital, but he hasn't nope, really not, taken not it. Not the capital, actually. Okay. St. Petersburg was the St. capital at that state, but it's the most important, right. largest, right. most it's important sim- city. It's, it yeah. was supposed to be a big symbolic win, like, yes. I have this. But instead, the city's on fire, mm-hmm. and there are rebels all over burning everything. They're setting more fires. And in Andrew Roberts's book, it, there's a scene where he depicts, or he talks about Napoleon standing on a balcony watching the city burn, mm-hmm. and there's nothing he can do about it. Meanwhile, in the back of his mind, he's thinking about the winter is coming and thinking about we've gone through Russia with no food that we've been able to gather for ourselves because Mm -hmm. of the scorched earth policy. And you talked about this a little bit, but can you elaborate as a man with his experience and his drive where he could have been in his mind or where we think he was based on his diaries and so on? Yeah. Where was he in that moment? Again, it depends on on which theory you subscribe to in terms of his motivations at that stage. If he was still a general, getting older, I think he was probably considering the magnitude of his mistake. That here he is, a thousand miles inside a country that will not surrender, that will not give battle. All he wanted was one great battle to force 
Tsar Alexander to the negotiating table. That's how he had beaten the Prussians. That's how he had beaten the Austrians. That's how he had beaten everyone. But the Russians won't fight him. I think he was tired. I think he was angry. And I think he was probably pretty reflective, like, what has happened here? I don't think he expected his ultimate downfall. I think he was still confident in that. If he is the megalomaniac and not the reflective human, fallible general, if he's the guy who thinks I can do nothing wrong, I think he was probably just more enraged. He was probably not considering like what led to this. I think he was probably pretty upset that why haven't they surrendered? I believe myself to be you know, the indispensable man, the person whose presence on the battlefield means that we're going to win. What has happened? He's fought 60 battles. He, has, he hasn't learned anything in his own words. Why didn't it work? So it's a slightly different perspective depending on where he was at that stage in his, you might say, his, his mental health or his mental career. So on that note, uh, he ob- obviously retreats mm-hmm. uh, and he gets back to France with 24,000 men who were able to fight. About that, yes. Out of how many again? The Grande Armée crossed the Neiman River with over half a million soldiers. Okay. He's so 600,000, yeah. Understanding where he was in Moscow and the possible states of mind that he could have been in mm-hmm. in that moment, understanding what was going on and where he was, what was going through his mind when we think about if you could kind of describe the scene when the czar enters Paris <laughs> and what was possibly going through his mind then? Well, Napoleon wasn't in Paris at that stage. Yeah, he had, he had fled the capital. But I would he, imagine, was still, he was oh. still aware of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. So, so what, what was on his mind then? And also, when I think about the French people, <laughs> what on earth was going on? I mean, if you think about this happened in 1813, everyone who survived the reign of terror remembers it. Mm-hmm. And now they see a Russian czar coming into Paris. Two things there I'm asking, but I uh, just wanted to get your reflection. Well, I think the answer is probably the same. I think regardless of Napoleon's mindset at that stage, he realized how comprehensive his failure was. And I think the French people are just in shock. How could this have happened. They had heard about the disaster in Russia, but they didn't realize the magnitude of the defeat. They had heard about the Battle of the Nations, and they knew that the enemy was getting closer, but they still had confidence in their emperor. He won't let us down. It's not until they see the Russians crossing over the Seine River on what is now the Alexander Bridge that they realize, oh my, we put our faith in the wrong man. So in thinking about what happened afterward, the same French people who some of them, obviously not all of them are guilty of this, but they lived in a culture where people were having their heads chopped off mm-hmm. and so on. A king had been beheaded. A queen had. The royal family, certain parts of it had. With that mindset, Napoleon loses. Why Elba? Why did he get Elba? Why? I, I, I know that they weren't still cutting off heads, but right. it seemed like that was a very interesting sentence. Well, because remember, ethnically... Napoleon is not French. He's Corsican. He's Italian, you would say. He's closer to Italian than, than he is French. So let's send him to a place that's relatively well-known to him. But why not kill him? Why, why didn't they execute him? Like, wh- Oh, because why did Britain start the first French Revolutionary War? B- because they killed the King of France. Because they killed the King of France. You don't kill God's anointed. Okay. And regardless of what their vision of Napoleon as a man was, for a time— he had been anointed by God's agent, the Pope. They were not. Now, there was talk of killing him, but ultimately the uh, European coalition said, no, we can't. Not we can't. We're not going to kill him. They thought, OK, he's learned his lesson. 
And so he will spend the rest of his life in exile. It was a very comfortable exile. He had a nice house. He had a great pension. He could have lived a very nice, comfortable life if he had stayed on Elba. Instead, he's sent to the middle of nowhere in a shack that's windswept, that's not particularly well insulated, that probably contributed to his early death. Yeah. Or possible murder. Dun, dun, dun. So thinking about after Elba, and he comes back into power, Mm -hmm. you said in the podcast that it probably wasn't in his interest or part of his plan to invade the surrounding areas. Like he was kind of- No, probably not. But who knows? Yeah. So, but assuming that it was not, that that was not his intention, why the sudden need to be like, declare war? We have to declare war. Oh, they didn't want him to- when Napoleon got any kind of momentum, he's like juggernaut from, from X-Men. He becomes almost impossible to stop. Okay. You have to stop him early on before he can get any kind of momentum on the battlefield or he will possibly reconquer everything that we, have, we the European coalition, we have liberated. So the world leaders at that time respected his prowess on the battlefield? Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. Wellington wrote almost admiringly of Napoleon. So Waterloo, yes, big topic in thinking about it. And it's, you laid it out extremely well in the podcast. So I, I don't want to get into too many details, but I am interested in the English cavalry charge in, in terms of what impact it had on, on the battle, why it was done. Mm-hmm. And was it done out of desperation or was it part of a tactical strategic plan? Because Wait, from- the, the English or the French, because there were two cavalry charges. The French cavalry charge was the main one that I focused on. In the podcast. Yeah, the I'm English, talking about... Yeah, the English one at the very end. Correct. Okay, correct. I, I'm sorry. I just yeah, want to yeah, be sure, be sure, sure you're... Yeah. Sure, because the things I've read about that battle, it was extremely long. It was yeah. difficult to see anything because after after several hours of cannon fire and, and guns going off, I mean, yeah. smoke everywhere, uh, just destruction all over the place. It's amazing that there was any organization left on any of the sides. Just kind of talking about the the English cavalry charge, Mm -hmm. was that part of a grand strategic plan or was it something different? No, it was a recognition that the French are on the ropes. We just need one final push to break them. And so Wellington led his men in. He actually, he he was a part of the cavalry charge. He led it. It was one of the largest cavalry charges in history. This is after the French cavalry has already been destroyed, after Marshal Ney made his mistake. So the the threat of an enemy countercharge is now gone. So he's figures, okay, I can gather all of my full cavalry strength, about 6,000 soldiers, and he goes right at the French center where the Imperial Guard is holding the last line of defense. And it was pretty epic. It's something that should probably be put into a movie at right. some point. I actually, when I was doing research uh, at Oxford, I found a, uh, an account of it that I want to, I'm actually going to read uh, just a portion of it, not the whole thing. So this is from an actual, from a soldier, an eyewitness there. He writes, the weather was foul with rain and clouds that blocked visibility beyond a mile. The French infantry and ours were locked in mighty combat, and the Duke, meaning Wellington, was riding to and fro, urging the men forward. Then we heard it, the roar of Prussian guns and the shouts of their soldiers. Gneisenau had come. Gneisenau is one of the Prussian generals under Blücher. The Duke rode to the rear and gathered his cavalry, perhaps 6,000 strong. I will never forget this moment. As he stood in his stirrups and drew his sword... A single beam of sunlight struck his blade and shone like a star. Forward, for God, for your country, and for freedom, forward. He then seized a Union Jack that was laying nearby. He then rode forward into the French line. Behind him thundered our horsemen, and the battle was joined. Uh, Getting chills. That's awesome. You'll love this. That account was written by a man named Royd Rule Tolkien. 
grandfather of John Ronald Rule Tolkien. Wow. Who then used that imagery For in the, the charge the of the writers in, uh, in Return of the King. Wow. Yeah. And it was interesting because the day was very, very cloudy, and there, there was a moment where the clouds broke and the, the sun almost seemed to shine right on Wellington. And for the Imperial Guard, these men who had fought with Napoleon for 15-plus years, they remembered back to Austerlitz. At a key moment in the Battle of Austerlitz, it looked like all was going to be lost, and then the clouds opened and the sun shone on Napoleon, and his men realized God is with us. They pressed forward, and they won the battle. Now, 10 years later, the sun is shining on Wellington, and the Imperial Guard are fairly superstitious. They're like, "Uh uh-oh, God has abandoned us. Wow. I don't know if I have a question <laughs> after that. That's just such a great commentary. Yeah. That's wow. That's that's amazing. I, I did not know that it was Tolkien's mm-hmm. grandfather or uh, it was either his grandfather, or possibly his great grandfather. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm, I think it's probably his great grandfather. Yeah. 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 But yeah, that line. I can just I can just see you know that story being passed from generation to generation until little Johnny is uh, sitting at wow. home hearing the story from his parents or from his nanny. It's like this is your great grandfather, and he's this kid with this incredible imagination who invents everything in middle Languages earth. And, and it's yeah, like, okay, crazy. I'm going to put that in a story someday. And he sure did. Yes, he did. Wow. One more question about Waterloo. I know that Napoleon was outnumbered and he wasn't thinking that the Prussians were going to show up. He was thinking he was going to be able to crush the English there and it, and he could then regroup and so mm-hmm. on. But even being outnumbered, he was still holding his own oh, yeah. extremely well mm-hmm. for a good majority of the Had battle. Had it not been for Ney's cavalry charge, there is a decent chance that he could have at least held the ground until nightfall and gotten away. So did, had he adjusted his, his tactics? Because you had said earlier that his, his enemies were learning mm-hmm. how he, he would go into combat and deploy his troops and so no, on. he did not adjust. He never adjusted his tactics. So how did he hold the advantage? He had the central position. He chose the ground. Okay. He marched into, when he, when he marched into Belgium, he knew exactly where he wanted that battle to be. So he put himself on a line, on the supply line, running from the English army to Blücher, to the Prussian army. So they had to attack or else withdraw and let him have Belgium. Okay. And it was very, very good ground for him. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. Going back to a comment you made regarding Elba and how if he just stayed there, he would have had a pleasant life. Mm -hmm. Just very nice. Was there truly any other future after Elba other than that one where he would have been successful? Uh, What do you mean successful? Sorry. so Or where he would have been satisfied. Satisfied, successful. Because I I just, I keep thinking, I understand what kind of man, well, based on what I've read, I can understand what kind of man he was. And I get that he wouldn't have been satisfied on Elba. But where he ended up versus Elba, Mm -hmm. to your point, was not great. And probably contributed to his death. uh, But also- Or murder. Or murder, yeah. But did he really have a future? And what he- Based on what he saw himself as and yeah. what he really wanted to do, was that the time for him to be like, you know what, I need to be realistic here to see, see what's real and what's not? So I'm going to answer, but I have to get a little bit of context. 1793, I think it was, 94, is when he marries his first wife, Josephine, who was the only woman he ever truly loved. He had affairs. She had affairs. He got mad at her for her affairs. She got mad at him for his affairs. But their marriage was the rock that kept Napoleon anchored. In 1809 or 1810, Napoleon starts thinking about the future of his dynasty. 
and Josephine, who's about 10 years older than him, is too old to have any more children. So he divorces her. It breaks his heart, but he divorces her. And that may, be, may have been that moment where something changed. It could have been at the end of his marriage. He marries the daughter of the Austrian well, emperor. Well, I think it was the end of his marriage because he divorced her, right? No, no, no. no. The, the end of his marriage might have been something that changed like for his entire, his whole mindset, his okay, whole worldview. Okay. Sorry, yeah. Because again, there's that question mark of what happened in 1809, 10, 11, somewhere around then. He marries the daughter of the Austrian emperor, Princess Marie Louise, and they have a son in 1811. Marie-Louise and Napoleon never really loved each other, and there was never any—it was basically—it was a royal marriage of convenience. He loved his son. And that's—I think that is the key to understanding the end of Napoleon's life. When Napoleon was defeated—actually, I'm sorry, even earlier than that, when Austria rejoined the war against Napoleon after the disaster in Russia, Marie-Louise left Paris with their son and went back to Vienna, and he never saw his son again. And if you read almost every letter to his wife and to the Austrian emperor from Elba, it's just let me see my son. Bring my son to me. Yeah. I think if Napoleon had been able to see his son and to raise his son in some way, have some communication with him, that would have satisfied him because his dynasty would continue. Not as emperor of France, but Napoleon II was the king of Rome, and the, uh, the Austrians initially were willing to let him continue to have that title. So the Bonaparte line would have continued. The fact that that didn't happen meant that Napoleon, it was, this is not the only reason why he returned, but I think this, this was part of it. It was, had to have been on his mind. I have to go back, reclaim my throne in France so my son can have it. Hmm. He abdicated. When he abdicated the second time, he abdicated in favor of his son as the new French emperor and the coalition's, no, we're not having that. We're bringing the Bourbons back and the king of Rome, Napoleon II, he's not going to have that throne. There's a story, uh, it was in Andrew Roberts's book where he's talking about a moment when Napoleon uh, watched his son riding a pony mm-hmm. and he fell off. And Napoleon wrote in his journal, he said, it was as if watching his son fall and hit the ground, it was as if a cannonball had gone through three lines of soldiers. Mm-hmm. That's how devastated he was, like oh, ran yeah. over to him and picked him up. And yep. it's just such a, it's such an interesting picture. I think it's easy to get lost in the history of what he did and not who he was. Mm-hmm. And who he was, to your point, as you have said several times, when we're thinking about specific times in his life, you have to you have to ask yourself what kind of man was he? Yeah, and where was was his head, and uh, his doting on his son and so on was mm-hmm. just such a such a departure almost from how he had lived his life up to that point. So you made a couple. Actually, you've made several jokes about, or was he poisoned? <laughs> I, I, tell me more about his death. So because- his he he died in eighteen twenty one, only six years after his fall on St. Helena, which is in the middle of the South Atlantic, basically 1,000, 2,000 miles from anywhere. And he's, got, he's surrounded by British guards and a British doctor. And there is some evidence, some people believe that he was poisoned because his autopsy revealed there was a great deal of arsenic in his body. Now, the body, on occasion, certain illnesses cause it to produce arsenic naturally. So it could have been, there was talk that it, maybe it was stomach cancer, uh, that it could have been, I forget, some of the other, uh, the other possible ailments. But there was some, some evidence to suggest because there is so much arsenic in his stomach that, okay, that seems maybe not to be a naturally occurring phenomenon. His last words were, France, the army, Josephine. And then he passed away. So again, that love that he has for the woman who he was never faithful to and ultimately cast aside. 
just another kind of thread in the tapestry of this very, very complex guy. Is it true, though, that, again, I, I've read this in a couple spots, almost everything back then had arsenic in it. True. It'd be like wallpaper, paper, yeah, dyes. Yeah, that's, that's true. And so uh, there's there's some belief, too, that, yeah, they did find it in his stomach, but mm -hmm. he had so much exposure to it. Everyone did. Oh, yeah. Everyone I, had it. I, putting my opinion hat on, I don't think he was murdered. I think I think that the life he lived, uh, the stresses of that life, he was probably, okay. it, it was just, it was old age. He was prematurely old. Yeah. So we're, we're getting pretty long here. I, I didn't know if you were. Yeah, yeah. One again, trying to keep this under an hour, yeah, folks. So one final impossible question for you. Okay. How would you summarize his life and his impact, not just on the world, <laughs> oh, but gosh. in history as a whole? So he's the Enlightenment on horseback, as Andrew Roberts, uh, the, the historian who we've referenced many times in this discussion, that's, that's what he called him. He said he was an Enlightenment on horseback. He spread the ideas of rationalism, the good parts of the Enlightenment, rationalism and scientific inquiry across Europe to some of the darkest and most backward corners of that continent. The ideas of the French Revolution, not so much liberty, equality, brotherhood, but just a generalized sense of republicanism or constitutional government, the Napoleonic Code, equality before the law, things like that, all across Europe. As I said last week, it was a Europe of the nations now instead of a Europe of the kings. Beyond that, you have to look at one specific idea that he didn't develop, but he encouraged, and that, of course, was nationalism. This idea that every ethnic group in Europe deserves to have its own country. Nationalism took hold in three pieces of territory, as I mentioned in the podcast, Germany, Italy, and Poland. If you know anything about the subsequent history of Europe, those three nations and the interactions of those three nations are going to have a profound effect on not just European events, but world events. Thank you for joining us in a discussion of the rise and fall of Napoleon Bonaparte. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Streeter. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. It really does help. From all of us at 15 Minute History, have a happy holiday and Merry Christmas. See you after the break.